What do you think of when you think of nature? Some might envision a mountain stream, others a hurricane of epic proportion, and still others daisies poking through the sidewalk cracks. Conservationists often engage with communities who feel disconnected from nature or have only experienced it through natural disaster. Having a healthy relationship with nature positively impacts our physical, economic, and social well-being. Part of the work of conservation is working to change how we talk and think about nature. This is The Nonprofit Experience, a podcast that presents candid conversations about the human experience of nonprofit work, and I'm your host, Sandy Sear. William Jamal Miller and Latrice Sneed have both made a career out of helping others connect with nature. Jamal is the Vice President in the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, Equity, and Belonging at Common Spirit Health, an organization committed to building healthier communities and advocating for those who are poor and vulnerable. Latrice works at the Nature Conservancy as the director for Build Healthy Cities, a global program building up the green cities of tomorrow. Latrice and Jamal are old childhood friends and high school classmates who grew up together in Northern California. In their conversation, you'll hear about the connection between nature and your mental health, the ambitious work required to change a narrative, and how tree planting is the most effective form of urban planning. First up, you'll hear from Latrice. I've been at the Nature Conservancy for a little over six years now. And I don't have an, a, an environmental background. So, you know, after we left high school, I went on to kind of get a degree in Black Studies and then also a master's degree in, in nonprofit. So for me, I just wanted a career in the nonprofit space to help people. And so I came across the Nature Conservancy. And when I started there, I was the, their director of volunteer programs. And um, I walked into that world and, and, and the Nature Conservancy is considered a big green organization. So large scale, you know, we have over 4000 employees around the world. So large scale, you know, environmental organization. And when I first went in and I looked around, it was I could count the number of people that looked like me right. on my hand. Right. You know, right. there were very few black women, mm-hmm. black men or just people of color in general. And our conversations were different, you know, so just like we were talking about how we grew up and some of our nature experiences, mm-hmm. when um, others would talk about their nature experiences, it was like, you know, I went kayaking down the river every weekend <laughs> or, you know, and, you know, these grand stories, you know, and I was just like, well, you know, I grew up playing on my front yard mm-hmm. or, you know, feeding the horses next door right. because there was an old farm there or, you know, I had to play. Um, I don't know if you remember that little graveyard on the corner of um, on Elder Creek. Elder Absolutely. Creek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, so I lived on that side and that's where we used to play oh, there. We used to play because there were, you know, there were trees and, you know, George Sim Park. Right. Absolutely. It was a little it was a little further away, but my mom, she wouldn't let us go there because, you know, they, you know, at that time where we were growing up, you know, safe. we had games right. and yeah. it wasn't safe, you know. So, you know, I grew up where nature wasn't always accessible, yeah. whereas, you know, and so when I talked to people about that at my job, it was like they couldn't, they almost couldn't understand, yeah. you know. And then I remember someone telling me one time, as I said, sometimes I get a little frustrated because I don't have this conservation background, mm-hmm. didn't grow up the same way people do. And they said, that's a gift because if we're going to reach more people and, and help them understand, you know, the critical needs and the connections between nature, health, equity, yeah. we need more voices and we need more stories. 
And so we've been talking about that and it pops up all the time at work. You know, sometimes people, you know, say we need more trees, plant more trees. And then you go into a community where they say, nope, I don't want any more trees. That tree might fall on my house and I don't have the money to get it fixed. Or that tree may, you know, drop sap on my car. And we need to we need to understand and work better with um, communities, you know, to uh, to help them understand the other benefits and how they may, we may kind of change the narrative in the conversation. And so that's been really interesting just in the perspectives of, you know, how different groups of people, you know, view nature. For me as well, you know, in this space, I, I, I have to, you know, encourage my colleagues to think about, you know, the role nature has played in people's lives from a negative standpoint also. Mm-hmm. You know, my grandparents both um, died from the same rare form of cancer wow. that was connected to the waters of the Mississippi Delta. Oh, goodness. You know, so, you know, I have to, you know, I have to be vulnerable in this space to help my colleagues learn yeah. in order for them to see that it's not just science that we can share. It's not just tools and resources that we can share to change the narrative, but we really have to listen to people and communities also. Absolutely. Um, Those live. And I think that's. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, to your point of how we get more people of color in the space, that's what, you know, we're going to have to be more open and, and change that narrative. It's not just one story about the relationship of nature or what nature looks like. There's many different reasons why people are connected to nature or may care about this work. And we've got to be more open about that if we want people to come to the table and either work with us, talk to us, you know, engage with us. Um, and that's how we get more people working in this space, too. Yeah, that um, I mean, you you hit on so much there that makes me think about the the broader public health framework, kind of the upstream, downstream dynamics that um, really influence everything from, you know, what causes mortality, disease and injury when we think about behaviors and living conditions and institutional inequities and, and social inequities. And when you think about that public health framework, everyone's lived experience is just uniquely different. And that's why it's just so mm-hmm. valuable to have someone, you know, like you in the role that you have, but to also have other folks like me, for instance, working in a major healthcare delivery system and any number of other systems, institutions, and structures where, you know, many of our peers and colleagues have to have a voice and have to bring not only academic and professional experiences to bear, but to also bring that lived experience and the unique perspective and to do it in a way that is not um, unilateral from the, from the standpoint of mm-hmm. even when we have representation from an executive standpoint within organizations, system structures or institutions, appreciating, understanding the value of authentic community engagement, kind of this bilateral mm-hmm. approach of how we can mutually inform, you know, uh, how we change living conditions and environmental dynamics and address institutional and social inequities in a comprehensive way that isn't top down, isn't just bottom up, but really it's done collaboratively and with the yes. information that uniquely impacts communities. Like we stick with, you know, our South Sacramento kind of Elder Creek example, thinking about um, George Sims, you know, George Sims Park. I remember playing Little League baseball there. We used to have like football mm-hmm 
practices there when I played in Pop Warner and the same for my um, my brothers. And you're absolutely correct, especially in the 80s. You know, it wasn't the safest environment, you know, and um, there there was to some extent as a byproduct of that kind of this this natural desert. We talk about food deserts, but you kind of had this this nature deficit you know, which especially has kind of manifested itself even to this day because of so much urban development that, you know, has an adverse impact by eliminating, you know, where faces, where open green spaces were were previously, they're no longer there. You know, the farms that we, Mm -hmm. that were adjacent to the school that we, you know, went to at Camellia or uh, open fields that were Mm -hmm. there when we were kids, like all of that stuff for the most part um, is gone. So, you know, when when we go back into communities and help, you know, communities have a greater capacity and understanding as to why tree planting and a more comprehensive approach to urban design and urban planning is so important, you know, that's got to be like an imperative. And oftentimes what we find in those communities is that, you know, folks just don't know, you know, what role does public policy and urban planning, planning, designing, all of that stuff, what role does that play in curating the environment? And oftentimes when it's city, you know, county, statewide or federal, you know, federally elected officials that are making these major infrastructure decisions that impact the design of these communities, mm-hmm. a lot of times there's a disconnect in that understanding, you know, so in those communities we Definitely. grew up in, some people may not vote, they may feel disengaged mm-hmm. or disenfranchised from the political process, but they don't make that connection to like, okay, our health is suffering in this community, you know, we're being mm-hmm. traumatized, you know, whether it's around a public safety or policing or any number of issues there may not be a clinic or a hospital that's accessible and we live in a food desert. A lot of those um, unique determinants of health, those social and, and um, kind of political determinants of health, there is a limited understanding that I think um, if we're able to address that over time, you know, and help people get educated about how do you truly transform and change communities into healthier spaces, you know, and, and you have to do that from a community capacity building standpoint, community organizing, mm. civic engagement, so that people understand that if it's about my physical environment, my economic and my work environment, social environment, and also yes. the service yeah. environment, if we can tweak those, then that's going to improve my behaviors. That's going to, you know, improve mm-hmm. better and, and cause disease and injury outcomes to improve. And from a mortality standpoint, will benefit from, you know, having increased life expectancy and a greater quality um, quality of life. So that those, it's all kind of interconnected. Right? It is interconnected. Yeah. yeah. And that's where, that's where I think we've um, made a lot of progress in the last few years, because I think a lot of times people in these spaces that are working on these problems, you have healthcare over here and you got the environmental organizations over there and you've got cities in the middle, you know, doing their own thing, the politicians and the city officials, and nobody was really talking to each other. And now when I'm doing my work and having these conversations, I'm hearing a lot more about collaborations and I'm uh, hearing more about people partnering and talking about these 
issues as one versus um, separate issues that everybody is trying to work on. But it is definitely. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and the other thing that jumps out when we have this conversation about health, nature and social justice is that even though um, there's this greater need to to educate our communities about the role that nature plays as it pertains to our health, there's a heritage and kind of a culturally significant part that um, that we have to re- remind people about. So when we think about Native Americans and, mm-hmm. and indigenous people, and when we think about the unique role that African-Americans and Africans have played in the development of the United States of America, and you look at our unique connections to nature and agriculture and, mm-hmm. and different you know roles that we've played around the world, and especially domestically, I often tell many of my peers and and community members, I'm like, this body of work, when we think about nature, health and social justice, is like who better to own the space, you know, than us to where we can influence and and change the narrative and really challenge this notion that it's kind of this tree hugger kind of space where only white people, (laughs) you know, are the only ones who are concerned, you know, about issues such as climate change and global warming and all of these other things. That's not necessarily the case. You know, we all are concerned about it in our uniquely different ways. However, the mm-hmm. way we, we've not been ostracized, but we have not been engaging of late to the same extent. But the cool thing about it is you look at and you would know this better than I would. You look across the country and there are just these unique pockets of best practices, you know, to where underserved communities, mm-hmm. where diverse communities have come together to change the narrative and to really embrace this role around nature and health equity and social justice and to really lead the charge in a comprehensive way so that we can enlist more and more people to be proactive in how do we engage with nature and and, and the design of our communities um, so that it lends itself mm-hmm. to better outcomes when we think about our health, mental health and well-being. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, goodness. <laughs> It's just, it's extremely important. And it's making me, when you were talking, I was thinking about, um, do you, have you met or heard of Reverend Dr. Otis Moss? Uh, Um, He's the pastor at Trinity United Uh Church in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You know, he and his um, church, they have taken it um, leadership in the South side of Chicago to partner with healthcare institutions, I think okay. it's Advocate Healthcare that they're partnering with there to create number one a clinic in the community that people can have access to. But then they're thinking about how do they incorporate nature, right? So the last time I met with them in the church, they talked about you know possibly putting a park right by the clinic. So you go to the clinic, and the doctor says, you know, you, you, you're stressed, you, you need to, you're obese, you need to walk. And here's a park right here. You should walk in that park for 30 minutes every day. And so be able to have that access, but then also to have, you know, we talked about the yeah. food desert, but to also have your own urban yeah. garden where people around the community can um, participate. And so I think, um, you know, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss is an example to what we should all be doing, because really change starts from the ground up. Start, change this change starts in the mm-hmm. community. 
And just like you said, just building off of these collaborations. I mean, he just had the thought and the vision to bring together healthcare community. I think they're even doing a daycare center near near the park. So how do people and how do you encourage people to kind of transform their narrative, transform mm-hmm. their neighborhoods, transform their communities, but also solving many social justice issues at the yeah. same time. So again, it goes back to um, something I was saying earlier about changing the way we talk about the importance of the work that we're doing um, and how it can be more uh, more integrated. Yeah, and, and what I like about what you just shared is like at the core of it is really empowerment. You know, when you work collaboratively mm-hmm. with the community and kind of put the tools and the power back in their hands, you know, as far as the ideas, like what's really happening in the community every day that they know about far better than we would. And how do we empower each other to affect the real change that we want to see? And, and, and how do we sustain it, you know, from a standpoint of making it, it last. And the other thing I, I thought about um, while you were talking about cities like Chicago is just these other dynamics and opportunities that we have across the country with regard to, for lack of a synonym, gentrification. And and when we think about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, communities like Oak Park, you know, here in Sacramento, um, where Oak Park is adjacent to like East Sacramento, you know, the more affluent part Mm -hmm. of uh, Sacramento, you think about the fabulous 40s and McKinley Park, Mm -hmm. but, you know, just right across the street, um, when you get into a different census track, you get into Oak Park, you know, in Oak Park life expectancy. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we think about East Sacramento and the fabulous 40s, the Oak Park life expectancy is anywhere yeah. from seven to eight years less to the adjacent neighborhood yeah. in East Sacramento. You know, in Oak Park, certain parts of Oak, Oak Park, the parts that aren't being gentrified just yet, you have grass growing on the sidewalks. You know, you still have certain mm-hmm. uh, parks that aren't safe for kids and families to to play in. But adjacent to that, back into the fabulous 40s, East Sacramento, that's not necessarily the case. So the, the cool thing on one hand about gentrification, which is essentially, you know, community improvement, is that you have the opportunity to put resources back into communities and to rebuild them. The part that I really don't like about it, especially when you think about communities that have been been uh, uh, deprived of kind of the natural benefits is that the resources that are now coming back that should have been there years ago, they're benefiting people mm-hmm. who are transplanting there. You know, they're not benefiting the original yeah. community members. And I, I don't like that yeah. dynamic that happens to where you've had families and communities for decades who have worked really hard in these communities. And now due to gentrification, You know, you have kind of this suburbanization of poverty. Some may call it you have this mass departures of people from these communities um, and others coming in. And then when the others come in, all of a sudden the resources come back, including like more trees being planted, more green open spaces, urban greening and urban gardening. So from your vantage point, how do we bridge, you know, kind of that gap of of not displacing people, you know, and also rebuilding the communities? Um, and refurbishing them with the natural resources that, you know, that they may have been deprived of for years. Oh, goodness, Jamal. (laughs) I I wish, 
I had the answer because I will tell you that's probably my biggest fear of doing this work is that I don't want to contribute to the displacement of people who have lived in these communities. And you see it, like you said, time and time again, you go into a community, improve it at, at more trees, green sidewalks, and then, you know, people are displaced. We have that problem right here in Atlanta mm-hmm. right now. There's a, a beltway that's being built around the city called the uh, Atlanta mm-hmm. Beltline. And, you know, it's a trail around the city um, where it gives people access to nature. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's great. We need it. But the, the trail also goes through southwest Atlanta neighborhood that has traditionally been uh, African-American neighborhood. And now what you're seeing, because people know that the Beltline is being built there, you're starting to see more development. You're starting to see people who were probably mostly renters. Rent is increasing and so they can no longer afford mm. to live there. And so it never fails that cities, cities are aware of this problem and, you know, they try and build in um, different plans and to accommodate and make sure that people aren't displaced. But, you know, developers somehow, some way always find a loophole, you know, to that. So it's difficult. It's, it's, a, it's a space and area that I care about a lot and I, and I hope to learn more about as I grow into this role because it's, it's probably, I would say that's probably my biggest challenge and my biggest fear about that, about the work that we're doing. So I don't have no, a good actually, answer no, that, for that you. Was, I, that was you know, a, a good example of what's happening. But I mean, I think embedded into your answer as well is just, you know, some of the answers to these complex issues aren't really that simple. Yeah. There's a term we use called the determinants of equity. And the definition of the determinants mm-hmm. of equity is it's the social, economic, geographic, political, and the physical conditions that lead to creation of a fair and just society. And mm-hmm. those are kind of the principles, I think. That core definition, it has to be, you know, key to how we redevelop and improve communities. Because if you're doing it in an equitable mm-hmm. way to really foster fairness and justice within our society. You know, the examples that you see in Atlanta, the examples that I see here on the West Coast, whether it's in Sacramento, San Francisco, Oakland, uh, L.A., and even in the Central Valley, you know, the examples that we see far too often don't model those principles, those practices towards fairness and justice. However, there are a lot of really innovative and interventional efforts underway. And the unique thing about our home city of Sacramento, under the leadership of folks like Mayor um, Steinberg, Daryl Steinberg, and City Council Member Alan Warren, and a number of other leaders here across the region, as they really understand that they've teased us for years. The people have teased Sacramento, as you know, about us being that cow town. You know that you know it was always second mm-hmm. to San Francisco and Oakland and L.A. The cool thing about that has been, however, is that our growth has been more incremental. It hasn't been too fast. So what a lot of our leaders in the private and public sector here understand is that we have a um, unique opportunity, you know, to where we haven't sprawled out of control. Mm. And even though, you know, cost of living is Mm. increasing and we're starting to, you know, develop the city a bit more and certain parts of the city are being gentrified, if you will, we still have that opportunity to get it right. And I'm really hopeful that we can do that. Whereas some other major metropolis 
areas um, have have, you know, they have a lot to undo. We have an opportunity to do it yes. right <laughs> the first time around to really build, yeah. you know, a, a community that is fair, that is just and allowing nature and open spaces and the built environment to play a key mm-hmm. role in keeping people healthy and and um, not traumatizing yeah. people and keeping people in a space that mm-hmm. you can live in a fair and a just society that everybody has an yeah. opportunity to take part in. I'm glad to hear that about Sacramento because that's what it, t- it takes, openness, planning, thoughtfulness. And you don't necessarily see that in, in, in many other cities. And it's funny to hear you talk about Sacramento and then just thinking about some of the places that I've been to or been learning about and how they're approaching, you know, development and incorporating nature into their communities. And you have you have cities in China being built, you know, from yeah. the ground up where they're, they're thinking from from the very beginning about how nature, you know, where are the mm-hmm. parks and how how many parks do you need in a city so that everybody can have access. But then you have places like I was talking to a colleague that was telling me about Jakarta, where the inequality is really uh, income inequality there. And, you know, the people don't, people here in the United States, if you're, if you have money, some influence, you probably have a house on the coast. And there in Jakarta, if you live on the coast, you're typically poor. The people who are richer live in the, in the mountains Mm. and the hills, because then they're away from the potential uh, climate disasters that may impact the coast. So it's really interesting. And, and, you know, and they're struggling, they're struggling in, in places like Chennai, India, you know, to come to some agreement on how to address the nature issues in the, in their community. So to hear that Sacramento is being really thoughtful about how they grow, expand, change. This really and what you said too, it gets me thinking, just a reminder that even though we are in the United States of America, but we are adjacent to Canada, we're adjacent to Mexico. And like really the, the global economy is not the only thing that just connects us, just the broader humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about, you know, right. nature-based decisions, urban planning and such, um, rural parts of, of our country, all of those unique dynamics in years to come um, will influence what's happening all around the world. You know, and, and we look at the the unfortunate realities of like Hurricane Katrina and, you know, tsunamis around the world and just major climate related uh, changes that are happening that really connect us beyond um, our geographic boundaries. And I think that's something that we we can never um, forget about the interconnectedness Mm -hmm. of our humanity around the world and policies that we're implementing here and things that we're doing uh, even domestically. What are the implications that they have around the world, whether it's around people, you know, who are immigrating yeah. to the United States of America or people who are leaving the United States of America to, to study or to work abroad. Um, these climate related nature based types of opportunities that we have before us, it binds us together in ways that we often aren't aware mm-hmm. or, or conscious of. And, and you bringing up those international mm-hmm. examples is a reminder of that. And I think that's a key takeaway that we don't live and necessarily in yeah. our silos what we do you know in our own swim lane affects wow. you know others locally and and abroad so thanks for, for example. yeah globally. yeah for sure 
Yeah. And, and there's so much learning. Right. And, and, and that's essentially, you know, the, the role of my job and, and the team is to look at the, the best practices around the globe from some of this work and the connections. And how do you share that with other cities so that they can learn from those experiences and, and, and improve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's not. And that's the difficulty, yet that's the difficulty of our work, that these are issues that are happening around the globe. And it's just different contexts, different enabling conditions that are happening. But if we keep on working together in this space and keep on having conversations like this and keep on exploring and learning from each other, I do think that we will achieve change yeah. quicker than working in those Yeah, areas. and I, um, I'm, th- I'm looking at one of the questions here as you know we wrap up you know about what what is it that we want listeners to take away if it's just one thing um i may have two or three things but you know what you just said what you just said influence what i'm about to say is that what we're modeling in this conversation is an example of collective impact it's like so what brings us together is kind of the health mental health broader well-being of society but you're uniquely bringing that perspective of nature and the nonprofit role, the the role that nonprofits are playing in influencing that space. I bring kind of my healthcare administration background to the table. And when we think about other peers out there that bring both intellectual and demographic diversity to the conversation, that's an example of collective impact. And that's so necessary to like come out of the respective silos and to, to, to really understand that across industry, what are we trying to do? We're trying to improve um, quality of life you know, for people, whether it's economically or geographically or politically. And, and so many times, you know, the issue in our country in particular is not that we don't have enough money. We have more money in this country than we know what to do with. But guess what? Life mm-hmm. expectancy isn't getting better. You know, healthcare is not necessarily no. improving after we put trillions of dollars into these various uh, industries and programs and interventions. So the key is, you know, the takeaway is how do we, from a collective impact standpoint, come together and collaborate and work across industry, mm-hmm. both public mm-hmm. and private, for the common good. And then the other part is, you know, there are around the world kind of region based best practices, you know, where we, we see that this community has gotten it right or they're doing something, you know, to improve the, the dynamics between health and nature or whatever the, the issue might be. So the opportunity we have is just how do we scale it and standardize it too, too many times? Yes. We'll have a best practice that is just localized mm-hmm. and it's only benefiting, mm-hmm. you know, that targeted cohort of people, which is good. So it's like, how do we elevate it? you know, through political incorporation and civic engagement and to hardwire it in a way that our institutions, structures and our systems um, have a a good, a a positive bias towards, you know, these things that will naturally make us healthier, make us better as a Mm -hmm. society. And I think that's a unique Mm -hmm. takeaway and also moving forward an opportunity that we have of how can we scale best practices yeah. so that everyone can fairly and justly, you know, benefit mm-hmm. from, from those things. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Jamal. And I don't have anything different that I would add um, 
to, you know, the biggest takeaway, um, because I do think that that's probably the most important. Well, I'm so glad that we were able to connect again after all of these years. And it's interesting to see just the synergies between our work. And it's also fun to have this opportunity to, you know, work with you and chat with you during this podcast and share some of our experiences. Yeah, for sure. It's great to reconnect, you know, with a childhood friend and, you know, a thought leader in this space. And I'm hopeful that even our respective organizations, we can figure out some way moving forward to to work together, you know, to improve the health of our country. So, um, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Thank, Thank you, you, Jamal. That's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was edited by our producer, Preston Whitworth. Shalina Omar is our digital director, and Andre Tidwell is the production assistant. All of our music was composed by David Mueller. I'm the executive producer and your host, Sandy Sear. This show is a listener-supported project of the Philanthropy Journal. You can find show notes and access previous episodes at philanthropyjournal.org. And don't forget, if you can, make sure you're an organ donor, write a former teacher a note, and be sure to send this episode along to someone you think should hear it.